Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We uh, talked about it a bit on Friday, the conclusion of the veto session of the Illinois State Legislature, the General Assembly, left us with uh, some modifications to the Pritzker Purge Law, the so-called Safety Act. Uh, Our friends over at WirePoints wrote about it a bit over the weekend as uh, people are still digesting it and trying to distill it. Uh, I think the characterization I offered on Friday was mainly cosmetic changes, uh, some clarifications, but the some in substance of the legislation leaves Illinois families less safe. It's just as simple as that. It was done haphazardly. This language cleanup on aisle five was done in the 11th hour. It was four of the state's 102 uh, county state's attorneys that were engaged with a leadership in both the House and Senate and, frankly, the governor's office that really isn't that interested in structural change to the law really isn't interested in in addressing the structural infirmities of the law. It's just interested in quieting some of the critics. And so critics like uh, we here on this show were vindicated in a part because you had all of these amendments to the Safety Act when, in fact, during the entirety of the campaign, anybody critical of it was engaged in what? Fear-mongering was racist, Uh, that the act doesn't say what we say it says. It does. It did. It still does in pertinent part. Uh, The uh, commentary from uh, Matt Rosenberg, Ted Dabrowski, John Klingler in their piece at wirepoints.org. The uh, amendments approved by the majority Democrats, and it was a straight party line vote, by the way, The amendments uh, signal a stark reversal, of course, to address concerns which they and many progressive advocates uh, advocates had largely ridiculed critics for raising. And they went they go through some of the key differences uh, that uh, the for example, the ending of cash bail, which is still a feature there. Right. Yeah. Uh, But it um, the question of retroactive application the amendment or there's an amendment that clarifies that cash bash cash bail abolition won't be automatically retroactive. There's a framework for hearings that we discussed on uh, Friday tiered according to the severity of the offense that a defendant is charged with committing. Yeah, but who decides what what goes on what tier and who's going to implement well, that? Well, it's based it's on the based crimes on. for which you're charged are okay. categorized. And then the judges will make decisions based on the evidence. But remember, the uh, the uh, benefit is given to release. 
right? The presumption is in the direction of release, not in the direction of detention. Um, the uh, the uh, upshot, kind of the conclusion of uh, these authors who review a number of the changes, and we can go through them, but lawmakers are still in over their heads. They left too many problematic aspects of the Safety Act uncorrected, and that puts Illinoisans and their communities at increased risk. Right. Let's bottom line it for you. Well, that's the bottom line. Uh, something else, too. I mentioned this on on Friday, just to provide some comparison of how much of a, a, a shoddy approach was taken by these Democrat socialists in charge of the state and compare that to another blue state that also moved to end cash bail almost a decade ago, actually. Just compare the timelines that have been raised the component parts that have been criticized by prosecutors, you know, the people who do this on a daily basis, the sheriffs who do this on a daily basis. So one of the main criticisms of prosecutors, you heard it on this show from Eric Weiss and Kendall County, from Jim Glasgow and Will County, many others, 90 days to bring a defendant to trial, otherwise they shall be released. And then you have all sorts of other problems that arise, as we've seen. One, the flight risk. Number two, the commission of additional crimes while they're on release waiting for trial. Uh, We've seen this, obviously, with the electronic monitoring program at Cook County. So 90 days. And the argument, among others, is, hey, look, particularly in cases involving violent crime, these are often complicated cases that require uh, the putting together of witnesses, the prepping of witnesses, the collection of evidence, the analyzation of that evidence and return from crime labs and so forth. And getting witnesses. Yeah, and and remember, we're not dealing with one case. You're saying, you know, everybody that we arrest this week is on a 90-day clock. And, of course, there are criminal offenses who could say, yep, uh, we want to go. We want our trial in 90 days. We're going to be ready because they want their clients on a 90-day clock so they can be released just as quickly as possible because that's, of course, going to be the perspective of people charged with crimes. So 90 days to bring a defendant to trial. By contrast, in New Jersey, authorities there can detain for 90 days before an indictment. Another 45 days they can petition a court for. They have 180 days, so twice as long, to bring a defendant to trial, and another 60 days they can petition the court for if there are exigent circumstances that require additional time. That's a big difference. Big difference. 312-642-5600. You can also reach us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And um, what happens when habitual criminals... Because that's mainly what we're talking about, habitual violent offenders. What happens when they're released pending trial? Well, let me introduce you to number 52. Prosecutors say a man shot his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend more than 20 times outside the woman's home while on bail for being a felon in possession of a firearm. He is the 52nd person accused of killing or shooting or trying to kill or shoot someone in Chicago while awaiting trial for felony just this year. The alleged crimes involve at least 90 victims, 24 of whom died. 
this is like talking about violent offenders who are repeat violent offenders who continue to sneak into this country illegally. People in this country illegally, they commit violent crimes. They're either not deported or they are deported, but they're back if they ever went. And it's like if you can't accomplish that simple task of dealing with known violent offenders, then what confidence should we have in anything you do? What What is the point of any additional conversation until you can accomplish that simple task? Well, it's the same thing here domestically, isn't it? 52 just this year after there were some 75 last year, 90 victims, 24 moved, died, all preventable. If you keep people like this guy, felon in possession of a firearm, and he's out rather than being detained while awaiting trial. trial. Give you another example. I mean, all we can do is tell stories. Yeah, but the 24 people, they will get their lives back. And where are their family members fighting against this? I would. I'd fight to the death for that. To even let Kim, does Kim Fox even know? Does she even care? She's so arrogant. Oh. I mean, the other issue, too, I mean, it's just even if they don't commit, they don't sort of commit, actively commit a crime. You know, these are people that have a black cloud over their heads because they've been engaged in criminal activity for a long time. So they bring trouble wherever they go. Let me give you another example. Three-year-old shot himself inside a home where a seven-time felon was on electronic monitoring for a gun case. Seven-time felon with a pending Class X armed habitual criminal case had another gun in the house where he was on electronic monitoring, and his three-year-old son shot himself. Oh, God. Thankfully, he only shot himself in the leg, so he's going to be okay. Then, now, this guy, seven-time felon, pending Class X armed habitual criminal case. Now he's being ordered held without bail. Oh, now well, he's been that detained. many times in order for it to happen. When he had Could, weapons in his house in the first place. He shouldn't even be in his house in the first place. Well, right. <sighs> and so, again, what the – I can't stress it enough, and we'll continue to talk about it. And uh, if this law, the Safety Act, is not enjoined by a Kankakee court uh, and that upheld, I'm sure, on appeals, if that's what transpires, we will be talking about cases like this, like these – in the suburbs, and we will be hearing screeching from suburban P-hats about what has come to pass in the suburbs. You heard it here first. We've been telegraphing this the entirety of this year, actually a year and a half, since this was uh, passed by the General Assembly and signed by Governor Pritzker. And you see what happens on a daily basis in Chicago and Cook County. You know the posture of Preckwinkle, Lightfoot, Fox and Evans. So I hope you're paying attention. I hope you're telling other people to pay attention to this case that's pending in Kankakee County, because if even this amended form of the law takes effect on January one, to borrow a a phrase from my favorite commentator, you better cinch it up and hunker down in the suburbs. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank 
is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this uh, controversy surrounding luxury fashion house Balenciaga's ad campaign. Don't let me pronounce it. I saw that, like, what? Ba- Balenciaga? This is uh, a um, one of these luxury brands okay. like Gucci, um, Yves Saint Laurent, owned by Kering. The parent company is run by a billionaire named, named Francois Henri Penault, who's married who, to Selma Hayek. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the ad campaign featured young girls holding teddy bears wearing bondage gear, and standing on top of court papers from a landmark Supreme Court case that focused on child porn. And when I say young girls, I mean like pre-adolescent girls. Well, toddlers. They look like toddlers. Wearing bondage gear. Yeah, it's gross. Holding teddy bear purses with bondage gear on. Uh, The uh, um, creative director of Balenciaga, Demna, as he goes by, because it's his name, but, you know, this one name thing. Um, I want to personally apologize for the wrong artistic choice of concept for the gifting campaign with the kids, and I take my responsibility. It was inappropriate to have kids promote objects that had nothing to do with them. Oh, okay, well, that, that's fine. Well, Apologies, okay, so we'll nothing to along. see here. Uh, that's good enough for me. Let's move on. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. It's just more of the continued sexualization of our children. I mean, don't don't tell me that with, from that guy. He he printed that out. He knew exactly what court case, Supreme Court case he was looking at from, what, 1964, I think? Printed that out, got the girls to stand on it. I mean, he, this, he should be fired, and the whole thing, I mean, they should be shut down, and Kim Kardashian should cut ties with them immediately. As much as I would sometimes like to provoke a thought through my work, I would never have an intention to do that with such an awful subject as child abuse that I condemn. Uh, Demna, their creative director for Balenciaga, says he's committed to working with child protection organizations moving forward. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, That'll Uh solve the problem. He's promoting it, and he knows it because he wants it. I mean, why else would you do it? Not for the shock and awe. The um, parent company of Balenciaga, Caring, that's headed by Francois-Henri Penault, is um, also associated with people who have to, who appear to have an obsession with art that depicts pedophilia and even cannibalism. Balenciaga stylist Lada Volkova 
has, this is Evie, Evie Magazine reporting, has posted many photos on her Instagram of children in distressing sexual or even violent situations. She's a close colleague of Demna, the creative director. Yeah. He uh, once told Vice, Demna, that he and Miss Volkova grew up on child pornography. Mm. That's quote, unquote. Grew up on child pornography. Yeah. The um, parent company of Balenciaga, Caring, um, also owns a, and, and by the way, it owns Christie's Auction House, too. Oh, I, mean, I didn't just, know that. Yeah, this is why this guy's a billionaire. Um, also owns a uh, website that features many different types of art, including a series of art pieces by the Chapman brothers, Jake and Dino's Chapman. Uh, one piece of art, which costs $140,000, is called Frack Face, but it's not Frack. It's a male toddler with an erect penis in place of his nose and an anus in place of his mouth. Okay. The piece of art shows the boy walking with a large brown T-shirt on and purple s- sneakers. Another piece of art with the same title shows an adolescent girl standing completely naked with the same genitalia in place of her nose and mouth. Oh, come on. She's wearing nothing but a black, a, a pair of black sneakers. What do you mean? Oh, come on. These are uh, highly sought-after art pieces. $140,000. Oh, dear Lord. Um, they would never do anything that would be exploitive of children in poor taste or... Uh, or the sort, right? Yeah, some people have taken notice of this, including Megan Kelly. Um, she uh, basically took them to task for exploiting kids for profit. I mean, nothing particularly novel about the criticism, but it is getting people's attention. Should it? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in DA that a quick comment. I just feel like they're trying to normalize child pornography. Like they're just dabbling in it. Like here, this is what we've been doing because if you look at our past and our the artwork that we've purchased, this is what we like to do. Anybody want to come on over? Hmm. That's what I thought when I saw those advertising or what they call advertising. Jason Northlake, you're in Chicago's morning answer. I, we're kind of missing a point here. Why aren't the parents being held accountable for having their, or for giving their, uh, giving permission for using their children in this manner? That's a good question. That is a very good question. Yeah. Well, they probably thought they were doing the right thing, you know, starting their daughter's college scholarship early. You know, not scholarship um, fund, college fund, but it's the price you got to pay to raise a star, right? Yeah. Greg Rogers Park. Hi, good morning. Number one, I just want to say, first of all, I really appreciate you guys' work. Really enjoy your show, and I'm very grateful to you guys. But more importantly, I just want to say, first of all, in Illinois, our mayor, our county board president, and our governor promote this kind of stuff in their own individual ways. But the main thing I want to say is that our Catholic Church has been silent on attacking this thing and bringing up how rotten and evil and sinister it is from the Pope to bishops, to, to a parish priest, to whatever, especially here in Chicago where you don't even hear Cardinal Supage saying anything, and I think it's disgusting. 
Thanks for the call, Greg. Oh, these, uh, you know, people in the fashion industry. All right. You know, they're avant-garde art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what about in schools, if I may? Okay, what? Uh, if Balenciaga's ad campaign bothers you, do these regular occurrences in schools around the country, do they similarly bother you? We'll just keep documenting like we keep documenting habitual violent offenders killing and hurting people uh, because they're out when they shouldn't be out. We'll just keep doing that in places like Chicago, of course, New York. Uh, the uh, post-millennial picked up a story out of Florida. The Jacksonville Area Sexual Minority Youth Network. Yeah, Jasmine. You've heard of them. Um, has... Um, lost their association with a local school district after it was disclosed last month that the center, the Jacksonville Area Sexual Minority Youth Network, apparently has a center, LGBTQ Youth Center, was promoting a sexually explicit card game featuring pictures of penises and scrotums to youth as young as 13. It was called the Penis Match Program, but they used a, a slang term for penis. Penis match card game. Mm hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, the superintendent, she's aghast. We have a responsibility to protect our school communities against the appearance of impropriety and apparent inappropriate conduct. The district simply cannot partner with the organization given their use of the program materials that the district believes to be inappropriate for the use of children. Gosh. Couldn't see that coming. Um, there's uh, pictures that have been posted online of the card game. It's fun. There's di pictures of different uh, sorts of male genitalia, styles, if you will. One is called Dick Cheney. Oh, boy. Hole in One. Oh, God. Steve, Turtle. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, it's a fun card game for the kids. The graphic drawings represent a wide array of diversity, <laughs> skin colors, size, age. Mm -hmm. An, uh, one called Unguard shows two erect penises touching each other. Oh. You enjoying this breakfast talk? No, it's making uh, me squirm. Another called Peekaboo features a limp uncircumcised penis. Okay. This is great for this the kids. For the kids? Yeah. Right? Maybe they'll grow up to be uh, creative directors for Balenciaga. California teacher, oh, that's uh, on one coast, Florida. California teacher who outraged parents with BDSM materials claims it helped kids' identity development. Uh -huh. BDSM. Wait, oh, everybody's up in arms about Balenciaga. <laughs> how, about, how about San Juan Hills High? California teacher boasted about a queer library contained sexually explicit content, including information on BDSM, kink, and orgies. Said the books help students figure out who they are. Sure that does. Of course. English teacher, uh, who previously identified as Danielle Serio, now is known as Flint. She's transitioned. Yeah. 
she's got a series of TikTok videos that detail these uh, sexually explicit books that she uh, promotes for the kids, you know, to help them for form the their identity. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's many here. Probably you could pick up a copy at your local K through 12 school district's uh, library. Um, but yeah, they're all profiled here. Uh, for example, the book is gay. It's an actual book title. Discusses the Hazel hookup site grinder and includes detailed information on, a, on how to have anal and girl on girl sex. Ew. For help people uh, to help people find their identities, help kids develop their identities. You know what I mean? We want to have we all want to have sex with loads of people. Uh, the prostate gland feels amazing when massaged. Lots of men, gay or straight, like how this feels. According to this book, is gay. Let's talk about dildos. Ew. Like a lot of people assume that where there is no penis, a desperate vo- sexual void is created, out of which something shaped must ultimately slot in order to satisfy and so on and so on but then you get into strap-ons and other things that help kids to develop their identity it's educational Mm -hmm. get into um you know opportunities to enjoy the larger culture when you're out of school Saunas or bathhouses are dotted all over the country. They're perfectly legal. People, uh, many saunas run lesbian nights, pay some money to enter and then have a bit of sauna and some random sex. Again, this is fine as long as you're safe. Right. Helping kids to develop their identity, don't you see? Why? I, I don't know. The criticism of Balenciaga, what are they doing that is our K-12 government school systems aren't doing? You know. To help kids develop their identity. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Before we get to the tweet dump from Elon Musk on Friday, uh, featuring the work of uh, now independent journalist Matt Taibbi, who we've had on the show before. And uh, boy, has he upset his uh, former fellow travelers in the press corps 
Oh, they're beside themselves. But but before we get to that, I, I just want to set the table here. What suppression of the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop allowed then candidate Biden to say in the closing days of the election? How they ran cover for him to lie to the American people with not just help from Twitter, but help from all those retired, you know, Intel and FBI types that gave the whole it has all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign line of propaganda. Here's what it allowed the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, to run around the country in the closing days saying 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA. Both parties say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. This is classic Trump. We have four days left and all of a sudden there's a laptop. There's overwhelming evidence that from the intelligence community that the Russians are engaged. I still think that the stories from the fall about your son Hunter were Russian disinformation and smear campaign, like you said. Yes, yes, yes. I know you'd ask it. I have no it's a last-ditch effort in this desperate campaign to smear me and my family. The vast majority of the intelligence people have come out and said there's no basis at all. It allowed him to lie with a straight face to the American people repeatedly uh, because, of course, he knew that the laptop was real. Right. In addition to the information contained on it about uh, Biden, Inc., and the business dealings around the country, he knew. And he knows he's the big guy who got a cut from his but, son's businesses. But uh, a significant percentage of the electorate did not know. And the combination of the deep state actors, and I don't know that you can call them anything else at this point, and uh, social media where people get so much of their information, in addition to the D.C. press corps, dutifully going along with the blockade and pretending that the laptop was a Russian disinformation campaign ensured that a lot of people didn't hear about this. And as we remember from exit polling, it would have made a difference in the election, perhaps would have changed the outcome. So Matt Taibbi's uh, Twitter thread here, he uh, starts with, sort of a description of what Twitter started out as from his perspective and then gets into this particular instance. In early conception, Twitter had more than a uh, Twitter more than lived up to its mission statement, giving people the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. As time progressed, however, the company was slowly forced to add those barriers. Some of the first tools for controlling speech were designed to combat the likes of spam and financial fraudsters. Slowly over time, Twitter staff and executives began to find more and more uses for these tools. Outsiders began petitioning the company to manipulate speech as well, first a little, then more often, then constantly. By 2020, requests from connected actors to delete tweets were routine. One executive would write to another, more to review from the Biden team, quote unquote. The reply would come back, handled, quote. And he's got screenshots. Taibbi was able to obtain many, many documents, internal documents from Twitter through whoever his sources are. 
He goes on, celebrities and unknowns alike could be removed or reviewed at the behest of a political party. The system wasn't balanced. It was based on contacts because Twitter was and is overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation. There were more channels, more ways to complain open to the left than the right. A White House spokesman, Kaylee McEnany, was locked out of her account for tweeting about the story prompting a furious letter from Trump campaign staffer Mike Hahn, who seed at least pretend to care for the next 20 days. Um, and, you know, he just goes on, goes on in that direction. And what we find, just to quickly summarize and then take some commentary on this, is, as Jonathan Turley writes over at The Hill, George Washington law professor, the Twitter documents confirm the worst expectations uh, and also feature... Many of the usual suspects, the documents do not show a clear role or knowledge by former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, but its censor in chief appears to be Vijaya Gadi, the uh, former legal chief legal officer. And this one in, in particular, James Baker, the former FBI general counsel involved in the bureau's Russian collusion investigation, became Twitter's deputy general counsel when he left the FBI. <laughs> oh, there you go. And he is the one that gave essentially the green light to spike the Hunter Biden story by saying caution is appropriate here. Even as there were some executives that expressed unease with censoring the story, former global communications VP Brandon Borman, who asked, quote, can we truthfully claim that this is part of the policy, unquote, with respect to hacked materials, which was their cover story. Baker comes across, as Turley describes, as someone who sees a Russian in every Rorschach inkblot. There was no evidence the post-Hunter Biden material was hacked, none. Yet Baker found the basis for a reasonable assumption that Russian or hackers were behind it. Uh, Many people recognize the decision for what it was. Former Twitter employee told Matt Taibbi, hacking was the excuse, but within a few hours, pretty much everyone realized that wasn't going to hold. And they did it anyway. Yeah. And on, what was the date? Uh, October 14th, 2020, New York Post published the Biden secret emails and exposed the contents of Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop. And guess what? Boom, they were taken off Twitter. The New York Post was. And now, fast forward two years, and as Elon Musk pointed out um, in response to, actually Clay Travis pointing out, the New York Times had not covered any of the documents that were dumped and Twitter threads that were dumped on Friday. Uh, Elon Musk saying, well, right, of course, of course they haven't, uh, because the New York Times has become nothing but a lobbying shop for the left. Yeah. But do you really think that if this was, you know, presented on social media at the time that Trump would have won the election? That's not what I said. No, I'm asking you. I said... Well, what I think is what we know, which is based on exit polling for the wide swath of the American electorate that did not know about this story, which was about two thirds, that it would that according to people who, you know, completed a survey, it would have impacted their vote. It's it's almost impossible to know whether it would have changed the election. But when you're talking about, I don't know, you know, a few tens of thousands of votes spread across a few states. Is it possible a story as explosive as this 
that implicates the big guy could have given some people pause to go with Joe Biden as just Hillary Clinton and Clinton Inc. redux? Maybe. I don't know. But it should have been out there. That's the key point. Whether it would have changed the outcome or not, the point is, wait, uh, giving people information so they can make an informed choice. I thought that was the point of the media. That's what they tell us the point is. Except when it's information that runs counter to the interests of their chosen candidates is what we understand to be actually true these days, right? And then Trump's reaction to it overshadowed this amazing document dump by Twitter. Didn't overshadow it to me. It overshadowed it because it gave the D.C. press corps something to hang on to in the Sunday talkies to focus on rather than the sum and substance of what they did in 2020 and what we know from these internal documents confirming a lot of what we suspected to begin with. But, yeah, Trump Trump can't help himself um, and he needs to rather than just even sort of order some like this is what I was talking about and leave it there. He has hmm. to go over the top and, you know, and ramble on about uh, about being installed as the president or some such He's thing. He's the rightful winner and the Constitution should be terminated. It's and... just unhelpful. It's, no. it's un- and it's unfortunately he just cannot. I mean, well. maybe this helps him. I don't know. I don't know, because I think I thought a lot of his antics wouldn't help him when he was. First a candidate in 2016, and it turned out that people didn't mind and they look past that. So maybe the case is still applicable here. I don't know, but I don't think it helps them. I mean, you know, when you have so many people, particularly uh, from even the center left, doing your work for you against the left, maybe you should just take a time out and let them dominate the conversation for your benefit. Right. I mean, it's a skill to know when to stay silent, and he just can't manage that. He can't do it. But that's all uh, they every Republican lawmaker that was on the Sunday talkies was asked that. Aren't you going to, you know, first question out of the box. Aren't you going to condone what Trump said about the Constitution and blah, blah, blah. I mean, how would you even do that? Yeah. And the and the point is that we're not going to do what the D.C. press corps does. No. So um, I'll ask and every leftist should be asked. What about what Twitter, the Biden campaign the D.C. press corps. What about what they did in 2020? What about what we now the the intel community? What about what they did? What do you have to say about that? What about what we know now from these internal documents at Twitter? And so it's been really interesting to look at the response to. To Matt Taibbi in particular, since he was this, you know, I mean, he wrote a book trashing Trump. Right. I mean, so this is not like some Trump. So now what do they do? They can't smear him as, as some sort of flack for Trump. So they smear him as a flack for Elon Musk. And it's remarkable how repetitive the attack is from all the different bots of the left. They're all saying the same phrase. And media, I actually had a nice compendium of tweets from the left going after Taibbi. What's the phrase? Doing PR for the richest man in the world. Doing PR for the richest man in the world. It's sad that a journalist, a, a serious journalist who's done some good work, uh, ends up doing PR for the richest man in the world. PR for the richest man in the world. Just say it over and over and over again. And this is what you'll hear now about Matt Taibbi from the D.C. press corps. He's just a PR flack for the richest man in the world. He just does PR for the richest man in the world. They won't address the substance of it. They want to ignore it. A la the gray lady is ignoring it at present, just like 
uh, the New York Times has dutifully ignored it for the past two years, even after confirming its authenticity, you know, uh, a little less than a year ago. Here's another reaction. Selling your soul for the richest white nationalist on earth. What? Doing PR in the richest man in the world. 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 You're a toady for the richest man in the world. That's all they can say. So it's all they will. By the way, Hakeem Jeffries, who is the uh, newly minted House Minority Leader, uh, speaking of a leftist bot, wow, listen to this guy talk. He was on uh, this week, and uh, he uh, took the time in giving one of his sort of canned riffs to make the point. All of this high-minded discussion of bipartisanship, um, what we're really going to do is hunker down against any investigations into Biden, Inc., Uh, But we will also oppose them when we must, particularly as it relates to any effort to go down this rabbit hole of unnecessary, unconscionable, unacceptable investigations of the administration. That's a lot of use. Unnecessary, unacceptable and unconscionable. Right. He practiced that before he got on set. I'm thinking that he did. Uh huh. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also text us at six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Tony Downers Grove, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan. Well, you know, here's the problem is you're saying this and, you know, it's out there. Yet CNN just released a story 11 hours ago uh, dismissing all of this, saying that it was just a bunch of tweets by Matt Teeby that was nothing that they already didn't know. Yeah, why is that a problem? Uh, you mean CNN, the, the, the station that is uh, – culling its uh, employees because of lack of viewership and associated lack of revenue. Why is it why is it a problem if CNN does it? CNN is the enemy. Yeah, the enemy. So why would I expect them to do anything different? Why do I care what CNN does? I don't. I care what I say, and I care what other people who are interested in the truth have to say. I care what we're saying on the side of free minds and free markets and fair play. I don't care what people I know are not who who are not interested in any of those things. I don't care what they say. But you see, the point is, why, why do we obsess about CNN? It's not not obsessing. It's that they're part of the mainstream media. I know. Right. And that's, no, I know. And that's, and that's, we know what they do. Watch how do we combat this? That, that's my question. I'm not disagreeing that they're that No, they're I know. Lying. I know. But how do we how, It's like this is always the how do we combat it? Speak up. Speak up. There's people listening to this show that have more of a following, but probably uh, are more. Uh, an opinion leader within their circles of influence than Don Lemon because they have Don so Lemon many, there. so few viewers. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this idea that. Over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, t- thanks for the call, Tony. This idea that CNN is some indomitable force, they prove every day they're not. And, and by the way, you just keep talking, keep unearthing, and keep discussing. Judicial Watch, which served as like a shadow Department of Justice during the Obama years, they're still doing the work. Secret Service has located hundreds of pages of records tied to the investigation of a gun belonging to Hunter Biden, despite having denied they existed. This Judicial Watch got these documents at the end of last week. This on the gun case. So you keep putting the pressure on. You keep uh, finding the evidence and putting the evidence out there for public consumption. And if somebody runs interference, then you highlight the person running interference and perhaps explain why they might be running that interference as we're now finding out all these things about Twitter. And isn't it interesting? Because remember, this is like the Illinois General Assembly. The bad news is they're 
cowards, and the good news is they're cowards. So, yeah, it's bad when they are too cowardly to lead and do the right thing, but when they're exposed as being party to the wrong thing, then they're rats off a sinking ship. The commentary from Yoel Roth, who is the former head of safety and whatever the hell at Twitter, who gave this interview at a conference last week about the decision on the Hunter Biden story. And he's in these documents that were released uh, expressing skepticism about spiking the story, but agreeing to do it anyway. And now he's trying to sort of, you know, salvage his own sort of reputation and and provide context for the difficult decision in the moment that he had. And it didn't reach my standard, but it reached somebody else's standard. You know, like they're they're not all going to go down together. Some of them want off. And the only reason that they're getting off or they're trying to get off and that we're getting this sort of commentary from them is because of, well, because Elon Musk took over Twitter and he's doing these internal reviews and document dumps. Hopefully there's more to come. And because of independent journalists that have contacts like Matt Taibbi, who's willing to post some of these internal discussions so they get a real sense of it. So they've been brought out into the light and a lot of them don't like it because they don't look so good in the light. And so that's what you do. That's what you do. You don't worry about CNN and MSNBC. Bob Grace Lake. Yeah, I call it the Harry Reid principle. Uh, remember during the election, Harry Reid lied about uh, Mitt Romney's taxes on and on and on. So yeah. then after the election, uh, some reporter confronted him about it and he said, who cares? We won. Uh, the Democrats yeah. rely on the stupidity and ignorance of the American people. That's what Jonathan Gruber, Obama, uh, uh, Obama's Obamacare guy, uh, said uh, when he was when he was asked how they got Obamacare passed. He said they relied on the stupidity of the people. Um, we all know the Democrats slant the news uh, by omission and commission. That's why uh, the mainstream media is the biggest threat to our republic. Thanks for the call. Yeah, no, it's a great point, actually, about the, hey, hey, that's just, you know, a bunch of talk. This is Hakeem, just going back to Hakeem Jeffries, this was great, because, you know, Hakeem Jeffries uh, denied the 2016 election results. He's an election denier. Exactly. This was a point that actually Mitch McConnell made on the Senate floor in talking about the incoming House Minority Leader, and listen to Jeffries' response to it. The newly elected incoming leader of House Democrats is a past election denier who basically said the 2016 election was, quote, illegitimate Legitimate and suggested that we had a, quote, fake president. Suggesting equivalence there with Donald Trump. What's your response? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that Republicans have chosen to focus on me. House Democrats are going to focus on solving problems for the American people. Uh-huh. The non-answer answer. Yeah. Okay, We're moving Hakeem. forward. Everyone's looking forward. Aren't you clever, right? Hey, that was just, that's what you say when it doesn't go your way. That's what you say to what, uh, uh, what, undermine our democracy, threaten our democracy, have people lose faith in the uh, outcome of elections. Oh, he's a threat to our democracy, Hakeem Jeffries. Oh, no, come on. That's just me running my mouth. No big deal. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer.
If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about uh, the Twitter doc dump on Friday detailing the decisions that led up to the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election. Both uh, Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi providing useful information to confirm a lot of what we knew or suspected was true, but confirming what's suspected is a useful exercise, knowing as opposed to just surmising. Matt Taibbi's been busy. He also participated in a debate in Toronto last week. Uh, He and Douglas Murray versus Michelle Goldberg from The New York Times and Malcolm Gladwell from The New Yorker. Malcolm Gladwell of, you know, Tipping Point and other such books as well. The uh, resolution, be it resolved, you should not trust the mainstream media. And Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi were on the uh, support side support the proposition you should not trust the mainstream media (laughs) as if his uh, Twitter thread would not have been evidence enough. But uh, his opening statement, I thought, was interesting. Just a couple of riffs from it talks about what the media is today, and this is not new, but it bears repeating. It's not in the business of fact finding. It's in the business of audience optimization. Instead of starting with the story and following the facts, you start with what pleases your audience and work backward to the story. The overwhelming majority of national media organizations cater to one side or the other. For instance, according to the Pew Center survey from a few years ago, 93% of Fox's audience votes Republican, while in in an exactly mirroring phenomenon, MSNBC's audience, 95% votes Democrat. Our colleagues on the other side tonight, he said, represent two once-great media organizations, once-great media organizations. Michelle Goldberg, the Pew survey says the audience for your New York York Times is now 91% comprised of Democrats. Malcolm, the last number I could find for The New Yorker was back in 2012, and even then only 9% of the magazine's readers were Republicans. I imagine that number is smaller now. I'm one of them, by the way. Uh, This bifurcated system is fundamentally untrustworthy. When you decide in advance to forego half of your potential audience to fulfill the aim of catering to the other half, you're choosing in advance which facts to emphasize and which to downplay. You're also choosing which stories to cover and which ones to avoid based on considerations other than truth or newsworthiness. This is not journalism. It's political entertainment and therefore unreliable. And, you know, despite the fact, as I mentioned before the news, that uh, Taibbi wrote a book critical of Trump. Right. He's not a big Trump fan. (laughs) I mean, the book was called Insane Clown President, just to put an exclamation point on him not being a Trump fan. He writes, "Um, I compiled a list of more than 100 of these quote unquote bombshell stories about Trump that went belly up from Bounty Gate to MSNBC saying Russian oligarchs co-signed a loan for Trump to countless others because these stories offend me. A good journalist should always be ashamed of error. It bothers me to see so many of my colleagues so unashamed. And here we are uh, 72 hours after the release of these documents related to Twitter's suppression of the New York Post Hunter Biden story, and they are similarly and still unashamed. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Emma Jo Morris. She is a politics editor at 
Breitbart News, formerly with the New York Post. She's actually the one who broke the Hunter Biden laptop story. She she was able to come into possession of Hunter Biden's laptop. So I'm sure everything that was released on Friday came as no surprise to Emma Jo Morris. Emma Jo, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Oh, so just just rewind us back to since you were there, since you're the party that's most directly responsible here for producing this uh, piece, getting this information out or is out as best you could. Um, so how did it all go down? You getting in possession of the laptop and the decision to publish the story? Yeah, I, I am happy to go back to I look back on it now with nostalgia. <laughs> um, basically, I, I'm Canadian, um, and I moved to New York to work at Fox News in 2016, um, right after I finished university. It was my first job out of university in the summer of 2016. Um, I was a producer for Hannity. Um, and so I moved to New York from Montreal uh, with not many friends, and I started to make friends um, as I obviously lived here. And one of the people who I became friends with was a uh, we had some mutual friends and he wasn't in politics. This guy named Vishbura. He was not in politics. He was my age. He was um, working at like a computer startup company, but um, he, he had a hobby of politics. Like he liked sharing articles and memes and chatting about it and stuff like that. So we became fast friends actually. Um, and we would go for brunch in New York and just hang out. And that was all the way back in 2016. And, and we stayed friends. And then eventually uh, Vish got to start working in politics and he became the producer, the first producer for Bannon's War Room podcast, uh, Steve Bannon. So um, he starts working for Bannon. And and in that time, I went to go work at the New York Post as deputy politics editor. Um, So I was the editor for national politics at the New York Post after Hannity. And um, so we're friends and we stay friends and we both put jobs and all of a sudden, um, you know, Rudy gets possession of the hard drive and he ropes Bannon in because of the material related to the CCP, um, which is Bannon's big specialty. And um, and then, you know, they're talking about getting it out to the press and Vish just says, like, I have this great friend who became the editor at the Post and she's, she's not like a brand name, but she's going to do a good job. And here we are. <laughs> Wow. I mean, obviously, there's more to it than that, but that was the initial way that I I got on their radar to get the. Well, the did story. you have any pushback from your bosses about doing the story? Oh well, there was a big. There's another big story um, between the time that this, you know, tells Steve Bannon to call me, and you know, we go to publish. I mean, I did. First of all, I, I didn't believe him when he called me. Um, so Steve Bannon calls me and says, I have a story that's going to change your life. And, you know, I'm like, okay. And and he tells me I have Hunter Biden's hard drive. And I was obviously open to that. But then at first, like, you know, and this has been reported as the experience from other media who have tried to get the hard drive from from Rudy and from Bannon. It's like at first they wanted to just give me certain documents. And I was like, no, no. And and then I start to and then I start to get skeptical. I'm like, why don't you want to give me the whole hard drive? Right. And I'm not accepting certain documents. I need the whole thing. You know, I, I I'm sorry, but like, you know, I just don't trust a third party. Like, I need to see it with my own eyes. And I wouldn't trust any third party. 
Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's a big back and forth at first about getting to see it and then getting to have it. Um, eventually I negotiated my way in to just see it. And then when I went to Rudy's lawyer's house to go look at it for the first time, I, that was when eyes bugged out. I took, um, a few documents off of it onto a USB drive to show my bosses. And then, yeah, of course there was a huge war with legal. There was a huge <laughs> debate inside the New York Post about whether we're doing this, if this is worth it, it, you know, how we could go about verifying it. You know, I mean, it was, it definitely wasn't a layup um, from the time that I saw it or the time that I heard about it to the time that we published it. There was a lot of negotiating uh, between me and the Post. There was a lot of negotiating um, at different levels of the Post. And then there was a lot of negotiating at the end between me and Rudy Giuliani to get the hard drive. Rudy, um, was was quite cagey with giving that over and I basically had this conversation with him where he goes um you know I want you to promise me six covers of the New York Post and I said to Rudy I was like hey if this is everything we think it is you can have 20 covers of the New York Post just give me the hard drive and so so ultimately he turns this over and and, yes. and what your your forensic computer geeks and so on and so forth um, yeah. There was enough evidence to substantiate that this was, in fact, Hunter Biden's laptop to run with the story, I presume. Well, there were a number of things um, that led us to feel comfortable with publishing. The first thing was, um, and I was blasting about this on Twitter this weekend, um, there was a So the computer repair shop guy didn't just go to Rudy Giuliani with this thing. Um, months before, he went to the FBI with it. Right. So Hunter Biden brings in this computer. This guy, um, it's water damaged. This guy has to transfer the hard drive to a new computer for him. That was the service that he was going to provide. And um, and uh, he's going through this computer to transfer the materials, and um, he realizes that it's, it's like chock full of illegal activity or what he thinks could be illegal. Um, so Hunter, so he calls Hunter and says, your service is done. Um, Hunter doesn't answer, never picks it up. Um, 90 days lapses, which is the standard amount of time that if a product isn't paid for and picked up, that, that it becomes the possession of the repair shop. So 90 days lapses and, and the computer repair shop guy calls the FBI and says, hey, I have Hunter Biden's computer. I, I want you to have this because I'm freaked out. Um, so the FBI comes and takes it and gives him a subpoena to say, like, you know, a subpoena isn't only um, a, a, you know, forceful request for something. It, it also serves as like a receipt. Right. Like if the FBI takes something, they give you a subpoena in return for it. So we published the subpoena that the uh, computer repair shop guy got um, and that was one thing that made us believe that this was real. Another thing that made us believe that this was real was, um, you know, obviously at News Corp, we had our people look at it um, and they had their own criteria for gauging what they thought of it. And then on top of that, we called recipients of these emails and said, hi, does this sound familiar? And read it. Wrong. And, and were uh, some of the, at least some of the recipients of those emails, they were comfortable enough to say, yeah, that's an email I received from Hunter Biden? Yeah, you got a lot of clicks, you know. Yeah, sure. Why? But, you know, yeah, yeah, we had a few. Yeah. Well, what do you think was One the most... Was Tony Bobulinski. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the most damaging thing that you think that you uncovered on Hunter Biden's laptop? Um, the first two days of reporting... 
um, if we lived in, in a sane world, that would be a huge problem for a politician, right? I think those are probably the two worst things I found, which is what I exactly what I published. I have no secrets, you know. It's like everything good that I got, I gave to you. It was, uh, you know, Hunter Biden making arrangements for his benefactors to be having meetings with Joe Biden, and then the set when he was vice president. And then the second story on that day was, um, you know, the Biden Obama, the Obama Biden White House uh, leaking internal conversations about Ukraine policy to Verisma. I, I, the uh, reaction from the uh, D.C. press corps to uh, what was released on Friday, it can't surprise you very much. Although I, I got to say, I mean, the involvement of James Baker. Uh, former chief general counsel for the FBI, who then went to become deputy counsel for Twitter. I mean, that just, uh, again. Yeah, wasn't this... that just too much? What, that it, was what's something that? that I focused, wasn't that just too much? That was something that I, yeah. I focused as well on in my in my reporting for Breitbart. Um, his little piece was so amazing because he is former counsel for the FBI. He goes on to be deputy counsel for Twitter. This guy is not unfamiliar with a subpoena. And he is he is talking to them about how they're not sure about whether they should call this a hack and dump or whatever the term that they have is. Um, and I'm sitting there screaming at my computer at my Taibbi thread saying, I gave you the subpoena in the first story. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, he, but here's, here's the thing. Wouldn't have an eye for a federal subpoena and, and maybe, you know, in that case, which is customary for Twitter, and Matt Taibbi um, reported this as well, that Twitter called federal law enforcement to say, hey, does this check out? Hey, do you know about this? Hey, can you look at this? That's normal behavior for Twitter. Um, so, so when they see a federal subpoena in the first story, which I had published, I just told you about that, wouldn't they say um, – you know, maybe let's, before we go censor this, take a five, take five seconds and call the FBI. Well, right. But, but it, you know, this is where, hey, go talk to the lawyers and get them to give us cover for what we want to do. So this is like, well, exactly. you, know, you know, caution is warranted. You don't so have to take a position, but just say caution is warranted so we have cover to suppress. Exactly. Well, that's what this was. But it, it was, especially by James Baker, willful ignorance in order to censor. Well, the, the other on. thing, the other thing about that too, and I think this was Miranda Devine's reporting at the Post. This in the in the run up to uh, the November 2020 election, you had uh, FBI regularly meeting, weekly meetings with Twitter people, and telling them that this was going to happen essentially, and so be ready for it because this is, as you said, this is going to be a hack and dump. We have good information that a hack and dump is coming, and it may be related to Hunter Biden and so on and so forth. So they're they're, they're setting them up, Twitter, the entire time to say, oh, this is a Russian disinformation campaign, and so when it comes out, if and when it comes out, make sure you spike it. Well, right. And that's the thing. And that's what I'm waiting for. There's a second dump um, apparently coming by Barry White. And I don't know. I mean, they, Elon Musk apparently gave her the documents on Saturday. I would expect it today or tomorrow. But there is apparently more coming um, on this. And that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the meetings with the intelligence community, which we know happened. We know through Miranda's reporting. That's right. That what she was reporting on was um, testimony by Yul Roth, who is 
the um, big uh, guy for head, uh, for trust and safety at Twitter. She was also reporting on um, the testimony given to attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, on their case in big tech. And, um, and also based on what we know from Mark Zuckerberg, who said on the Joe Rogan experience about a month ago that, um, yeah, he casually mentions, you know, I was having meetings with the intelligence community and with the FBI, um, you know, in the lead up to the election, and, and they were warning me about right. Russian disinformation, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we know that these meetings are going on. All we need is the receipts. Um, and that seems to be a lot of what's going on right now. It's like, it, it's been so much time since this event actually happened two years ago that we have been able to basically piece together, um, you know, some semblance of what happened and what these documents are that Elon Musk are revealing is just, it's just color and, and, you know, a firm, like a firm story as to what happened. And, and is this, is, is it your understanding, is this all Elon Musk just uh, releasing these documents through people like Barry Weiss and, and uh, Matt Taibbi? Or is this also like Taibbi having his own internal sources that were leaking information to him? I'm, I don't know. Uh, okay, but I just, it, yeah, it I was looking for clarity that on that. Elon yeah. Musk is saying, you know, and that's why he's, t- it seems like that's, why he's taking Saidi and Barry Weiss is these are people who are very familiar with the media um, and are also very familiar with um, media malpractice um, and are very skeptical of media and and legacy media, but who are also not, um, you know, firmly on the right. Right, You know, I think that these are journalists that appear to me like Elon Musk is making his best effort to really um, have this, uh, be be interpreted as credible by everybody possible. You know, right. anybody who who is going to be open to this information, even remotely. She is Emma Jo Morris, politics editor at Breitbart News, formerly with the New York Post, as we were discussing. Emma Jo Morris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, you know the artist uh, Morrissey? You may remember him from such bands as the Smiths in the 80s, if you were a little alternative Yes. So, I mean, he's had a, a long and storied music career, mainly across the pond. He's British. He started out in the punk scene in Manchester, and then he had the, uh, the time with the Smiths in the 80s, where he sort of crossed over here and... The Smiths were popular in certain circles, and so he's had, but and he's continued on making music. And in the last uh, couple decades, he's become a bit of a critic, a bit of a social critic as well about British culture, as he's seen, in his view, British culture decline. He's been outspoken against some of the aspiring totalitarians in charge of you know, our civic and cultural institutions in the West and particularly in England, comments on social media and the the sort. And so he sat down for an interview recently on the occasion of a forthcoming album 
to talk a little bit about uh, the music industry because he's sort of always been a guy on the outside in, not getting a lot of rotation on radio and so forth. Um, talk about that. Talk about British culture. And he's been sort of held up by conservatives intermittently over the last several years when he made when he's made comments like those you're about to hear. But to me, he's also a good example of the whimsical libertarian who doesn't have it right. He has some of it right, but he doesn't see the, the internal contradictions of his position. And so actually, if you want to take the approach that Morrissey is taking, you're guaranteeing that you will turn your culture over to those totalitarian, identitarian mobsters that he decries. That's what's interesting about it. And I haven't really heard anybody pick it up. We're so quick to jump. Anybody who's critical of the vernacular and the intolerance of the left, we want to hold up as, hey, isn't that great that what Morrissey's saying? It is until it isn't. So uh, first the good, a Morrissey on diversity. Music, really, not many people have faith in music anymore. Mm. And because a lot of things have changed financially in the music industry, labels now can just get rid of you if your album doesn't go instantly platinum. There's so many younger bands who have done really well with their first album. Maybe they reach 23, 22, 21. It's not enough. They're dumped. They're not allowed to make a second album. Whereas years ago, as you might know, people could make five flops and the label would stick by them. Now the labels are quite bloodless. They will just get rid of you if you say anything that they don't agree with. They're they, not interested. They won't see you through the journey anymore. Really. No, 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 they're not interested. They're not. And that's, you know, now they talk all about, oh, we must have diversity, 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 which is pe diversity of people that you don't know. And mm -hmm. it just means, it's just another word for conformity. It's yeah. the new way of saying conformity, diversity. You don't see anything diverse anywhere. No. It's all conformity. It's having the opposite effect, in fact, isn't it? It is, because when people talk about diversity, they don't think about the great things that we don't have in common mm -hmm. and those things are ignored and they always made countries very interesting because you could travel to germany you could see the most incredible culture you go to italy you see the most incredible culture now they just want everything to be the same the same, the same. Yeah. so diversity means conformity it doesn't mean let's it doesn't mean avant-garde or mm -hmm. let's make really interesting strange art it means box Everybody. Yeah. Diversity, I think, is He's a dying, dreadful word. Mm. Pin it to anything, and that situation is finished. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible word. Terrible. Hmm. He's right about that. I completely agree with that. Diversity is uh, just a another way of saying conformity. conformity. Yeah. Three one two six four two five six zero zero. That's our turnkey dot pro answer line. You could also reach us at six four six three six. Type in da, then a quick comment. You know, it's one of these it's one of these uh, interviews or conversations that you have where you're nodding your head, you're nodding your head, you're nodding your head, and then you say, "Wait, what?" Yeah, what part? So here's you know. my wait, what moment? He uh, continues talking about uh, the diversity mob, which is you would think is an oxymoron, but as he points out, no, it's actually the perfect phrase. It's a mob that's rooted in conformity, like every mob. And you just have to attach this watchword of diversity to it to try to 
deprogram people about what they think they're doing versus what they're actually doing. So he continues on this riff, and then for me, there is a wait what moment. The, yeah, no, well, sense. the thing is, they desperately need to find a witch. Mm. They have to find a witch. They have somebody to find to somebody cancel. who is disgraceful and horrible and blah, 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 blah. And uh, you can see the joy in mm. people. Do you remember Mary Whitehouse? Yes, yeah. The joy. So many people have turned into Mary Whitehouse trying to cancel. I don't like... Mm. I'm offended. Uh, as if you being offended means... means that, anything. That, mm. that you're intelligent. It just means you're an idiot. <laughs> Um, but this Mary White, we're in a Mary Whitehouse culture now mm -hmm. where everybody must say, stop, I don't like that. Get us off the planet. And people like that, I think, are, are, are dreadful people. Yeah. Just walk the other way. Mm -hmm. Don't look. Switch Absolutely. off. Listen to something else. Bake a cake. You don't have to stop it for other people. No. Yeah. But also, we're also in a in a protest culture like the late 60s, when everybody loved to go out and be, get on the streets and protest and be angry about something and to march up and down. Everybody wants to do that now. Mm -hmm. They want to be irate about something, which is okay, but uh, you might be wasting your time. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line, to uh, get the... Wait, what moment, at least the one that I had, you have to know who Mary Whitehouse is. And she was a, an art teacher and like a social critic in England uh, at the end of the last century, uh, sort, of, sort of akin to Phyllis Schlafly in this country. Okay? okay. So she's you know coming from a conservative traditional perspective with her social criticisms and advocacy. And uh, so now you understand the reference that Morrissey is making when he said we've all become Mary Whitehouses. But the question is, is a, a Mary Whitehouse, a Phyllis Schlafly, to Americanize it, is that the same as the identitarian mobs of today? Is that the same? And while you're thinking about that in terms of is the advocacy the same as the two sides of the same coin, <laughs> This last piece, you know, Morrissey's outspoken on a range of topics, and one he, some of you may know, he's been uh, tr trumpeting for his entire time in the public eye for decades, is animal rights. And so as you're thinking of his take on social advocacy, different varietals of social advocacy, listen to what he has to say about animal rights, which is, something that's central to his social advocacy. I think, I, it's, I think it's really fascinating because I'm old enough to remember when it was really stuck situation. You couldn't do anything about anything. And if you said the word vegetarian, mm -hmm. you were ridiculed beyond belief. Yeah. But now I'm just so happy about the changes everywhere. I'm really, really happy. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I know I have spoken endlessly about this in the past, but I feel almost justified now yeah. because there's a great reluctance, but they're doing it anyway. They're reluctant to, to give you um, any credence, yeah. but it's yeah. happening anyway because they want to make money. So if you, if you have eight friends who go out to a restaurant and two of your friends happen to be vegan, then that restaurant is going to lose everybody 
if yeah. they can't cater for the two mm -hmm. vegans. So everybody's just saying, oh, God, we have to do it now. And everybody's becoming aware of animals as um, beautiful creatures mm -hmm. who have done so much for us. Yeah. They've done so much for us. Give them a rest. Instead of taking Leave them taking. alone. Yeah. <laughs> They've done so much for mm -hmm. the human race, and they should be rewarded now, and they should be allowed to live, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't want to laugh at his advocacy for animal rights, but it's just give them give a rest, a leave them alone. <laughs> don't eat meat. Uh, yeah, I get it. Okay. It's just a, sort of a funny way to say it, but... Uh, yeah. So now factor that in. I don't, you know, I, here's my, my take on it. I'll just give you my take. Okay. So he decries the ongoing degradation of British culture, but he characterizes the 21st century witch hunters. And he's right. They're looking for witches, these identitarian mobsters. He characterizes them as modern day Mary Whitehouses or Phyllis Schlafly's. So in doing so, he conflates statists like these identitarian mobsters with conservative social critics like Phyllis Schlafly, who sought to prevent the government from imposing views destructive of societal norms. Prevent the government as opposed to utilize the government as the left seeks to do always. So, for example, to remind of one of the more stark examples from a, the, the 80s. If, if Andre Serrano wants to make money putting crucifix in a, a crucifix in a jar of urine, which he did, go ahead. But uh, don't make me pay for it, which is what we did. That was a, a, an infamous National Endowment of the Arts grant. Oh, God. And don't make my kids study him in art class. And that's the other piece of it. You know, this is the, I mean, it's sort of the same conversation about marriage redefinition. Oh, get the state out of it. No, no, no. You're forcing the state into it. You've got it exactly reversed. And to compare uh, a Mary Whitehouse or a Phyllis Schlafly to these identitarian mobsters of today is to conflate status with conservative social critics interested in cultural norms, not interested in using the state as a sword. He, he strikes me, does Morrissey, as sort of the whimsical libertarian when he says, you know, if you don't like something, don't listen to it, don't watch it. Yeah, okay, sure, fine. But that doesn't quite resolve those matters, does it? Because you are willing to exercise restraint doesn't mean your neighbor will absent a legal one. So who's always in the restraint business? Now, I don't support conservatives uh, uh, or, or con those who present themselves as conservative social critics wanting to uh, ban books, uh, uh, even necessarily the, the Tipper Gore warning labels on music kind of thing from back in the day, two live crew and whatnot. Uh, that's unnecessary. But the, the larger point is to say, one, you're forcing the adoption of new norms because it's not just that you're using my money to underwrite what you believe is art it's also you're taking these individuals and their work product that is subversive of the norms upon which the country was founded and you're insinuating them in all of the institutions that are formative of culture 
So don't tell me to, you know, disarm when you're advancing on me. That's what was going on here. And so the animal rights crusade that he's on is so perfect. This provides a definitive insight. He celebrates social pressure imposed on restaurants, for example, to accommodate vegans, which you heard him say right there. You know, if you don't serve my two friends who are vegans and all eight of us are going to leave, there's pressure on restaurants. Well, I mean, there's pressure on restaurants to, you know, serve people. You're not business of service but anyway but okay but you want that social pressure brought to bear leave those animals alone give them a rest have a salad um but he denounces mary whitehouse's efforts to bring social pressure to bear against pornography and the like philip schlafly's efforts to bring uh social pressure to bear on you know familial issues and pushing the government out of their efforts to intervene between parents and kids which we've seen the results of that and we've talked a lot about it so it's that's what i say it's one of these yes 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 morsi on diversity as conformity yes 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 on the mobs uh, the always looking for a witch uh, inventing grievances degrading get uh, degrading culture uh-huh 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 wait 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 the whole just sort of anything goes libertinism of libertarians like Morrissey is incredibly naive because the authoritarian left seeks control and imposition of these institutions. And if you just take the hey, 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 anything goes, that is not their perspective. They, w- they are happy to impose, as you see over and over again. So you better push back and say, no, no, restraint here. No, no, these institutions have to, re- should in their curricula, for example, art houses in their choice of what pieces to profile should reflect certain norms, certain values. So that, that is a real fight. And you withdraw or retreat at your own peril. And I, th- I don't think Morrissey has an appreciation for that. As pre- and, and it's funny because he's, he bitches about being on the outside of the music industry. He's, he's this anti-establishment guy. Yeah, I've never been accepted. Yeah, but, but at the same time, he sort of not so secretly wants to be accepted. You'd think they'd give me some recognition just for longevity because I've been doing this for 40 years. So he's like almost still seeking acceptance even as he's positioning himself as this anti-establishment guy on the outside who's uh, uh, succeeded based on uh, you know, the will of the people, his, his popularity not based on corporate packaging and marketing that was behind his music. So there's just it's I think it's just an interesting uh, discussion because he's a smart guy, clearly, and he's not afraid to speak out. But and he's got, you know, some of the uh, targets correct. But I'm not sure that he understands sort of the holistic approach that's required. James in Westmont, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, he's always been uh, a humble narcissist. But anyway, I agree right, with yeah, him a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I agree with him about, you know, giving me to rest after you cook a nice steak. You want to rest it a bit, like maybe a few (laughs) minutes before you cut into this. All the juices don't fly out at you. Yeah. So I agree with him on that. And, you know, and 
don't forget too you gotta give you know vegetables a rest you know you, you know what it's <laughs> right. like for, to rip them out of the ground you know that's real painful for that people don't realize it right it's traumatic you're not being invited to dinner with morrissey i can tell you that thanks for the call james dan and amy chicago's morning answer the stories you need to know to start your day this is chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, the uh, California Reparations Task Force is in with their long-anticipated recommendations. And if it happens there, it'll happen here? Well, we uh, already have reparations in Evanston, Illinois, and St. Petersburg, Florida. There's no question. There's this is places. the way it's. This is the way it goes. I mean, it, you know, when you turn over your state to these identitarian mobsters, it, what you're seeing happening in New York or California, if it hasn't happened yet in Illinois, it's on the docket. Descendants of slaves in California could re- receive two hundred twenty-three thousand two hundred dollars each. Whoa, that would be about five hundred seventy billion dollars, which is more than the entire. State budget of California in 2021, but that's, you know, work it out. Maybe, you know, pay it out over a few years. About 6.5% of California residents, that's 2.5 million, identify as black or African American. Uh, 223.2, very precise, per person. And um, who came up with that number? This task force. Oh, okay. Yeah. As I said, very precise. Um, here is uh, their uh, a, a summary of their proposals because there's there's more than just that dollar amount. You know, you've got to eradicate the structural racism of a white patriarchal society. So it's going to take more than a one-time cash windfall, don't you think? Of course you do. Um, so um, more to be done. More to be done. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey dot Pro text line. Yeah, the um, you mentioned Evanston, right? Evanston, it's housing grants, right? Or you know, loans to fix up your place if you currently have your mortgage paid off, and there's various things you could do with the money. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, good start, but. Uh, Two hundred twenty-three grand, for example, that also a good start. Long way to go. With what are the grants in uh, Evanston f- up to fifty grand? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then they had a panel, and I watched, you know, the news, local news story on it. And people presented their cases before the city council, and then they decided which five people to start with will get the money first. Yeah. Um, proposals in California that uh, hopefully, of course, will be coming to Illinois post haste. Estimate the amount of black businesses that have lost in stolen or destroyed property through racial terror and distribute it back to black Californians. Yeah. Estimate the amount that black businesses have lost in stolen or destroyed property through quote unquote racial terror. I'm sure that's neatly defined. Adopt mandatory curriculum for all teachers to take anti bias training. Recruit black educators for K twelve. Provide scholarships to black high school graduates to cover four years of undergraduate at a choice school. Oh, interesting. School Ooh. choice. Oh, oh no, there's school choice. Welcome man. to the party, Hello. leftists. All of a sudden you want your, uh, kids that are relegated to terrible government-run schools to have school choice. Well, on that we can agree. Okay, there's one. 
compensate individuals who were forcibly removed from their homes due to state action, such as park and highway constructions. Well, you were always forced to do that eminent domain. Well, uh, okay. I, I mean, I, if there was some abrogation of that constitutional requirement, fine, but that's on an individual basis. Uh, but, but um, okay, whatever. Create funding to invest in environmental infrastructure. Create equal access to parks and national resources in black neighborhoods. Compensate families who were denied inheritances they would have received if they were white. Huh? What? So, uh, black father leaves money to his black children and they didn't get their inheritance? But they would have if they were white? What? Mm, yeah, that, that doesn't work for me, but okay. Um, Not buying that. So... Yeah, there's uh, there was some sort of exception in a state law to the transfer of property from black from you know black parents to black children and so on and so forth. Huh. Uh, okay, I'm going to need more detail on that, but sure. Uh, compensate those who have been discriminated and deprived of rightful rightful profits from artistic, creative, athletics, and intellectual endeavors. Well, again, these are individual like fraud cases or something. Uh, raise the minimum wage in predominantly black industries such as food and ag. Okay, we're going to have different minimum wages in different industries. That's interesting. Equal protection. Mm. Require scaling up the minimum wage for experienced workers. Experienced workers. Yeah. What are the thresholds there to be experienced? Create a fund to support. And by the way, isn't this like a labor management issue? Create a fund to support black-owned businesses and eliminate licensure barriers that harm black workers. Okay. I'm for that. I'm eliminate licensure barriers. There's another thing we agree on. Compensate people whose health has been permanently damaged by anti-black health care. Implement policy to close the racial wealth gap in California. Isn't that what the 223 grand is for? Uh, implement a clear and detailed program to help African-Americans obtain reparations. Policy to close the racial wealth gap, then reparations in addition. I see. Establish an office of American of African Americans Freedmen Affairs to document eligibility and prevent future harm. Boy, Ooh. that reparations committee has been uh, task force been uh, hard at work. All right, okay. We have our marching orders, and um, I don't know how to break this to you, Amy, but, um, what? well, <laughs> what? W- white women must do more to confront racism. Ah, this is on you and your, um, your fellow honky, honky women. Um, this is a forthcoming book from Syra Rao and Regina Jackson. White women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. Perfect stocking stuffer. You're mm-hmm. going to give me that, right? Yeah. You know, Christmas oh, comes early. Well, I mean, you know, this is the question they're asking. Hey, where are the white women at? And they want to know. We need to do more. Okay. Let me uh, give you a bit of a tutorial thanks to these ladies. Um, there's a three-point plan for perfectionism, and this is the problem. You're trying to be perfect. The three-point plan for perfectionism goes something like this. Hey, honky women, listen up. This is on you. You've been taught generation after generation that talking about politics over a meal is rude. Being rude is the enemy of perfection. 
being perfect is your number one life goal, so you will not talk about racism. And that's the problem with you babes, you honky babes. You're not speaking up where you should be speaking up and and not in hushed tones either. Mm-hmm. Getting called out makes you want to stop the work. And like Karine Jean-Pierre, you got to do the work. To stop engaging. If you aren't already perfect at it, you don't want to have anything to do with it. Yet if you stop the work, you cannot make progress. Then there are those situations in which the critique of you is coming from a woman of color. This will hit you in a deeply uncomfortable place. After all, you're not used to having us challenge you. And on a topic we absolutely know more about, being on the receiving end of racism. This, in particular, infuriates the honky women of the world. Us publicly calling you out on your racism. Us publicly telling you are not perfect. But anti-racism work depends on your acknowledging your imperfections, namely how you've been born into and nurtured by a white supremacist society. That means acknowledging you're not an expert on how it feels to be on the receiving end of racism, which means you do not get to decide what it is, what is and is not racist. It means acknowledging that you will get it wrong, that you will feel embarrassed, that you will struggle to make progress. And in spite of these obstacles, And this necessary discomfort, you will have to pick yourself up and get back into the work. Work that is messy, not tidy. Work that is tables turned upside down, not neatly set. Work that is imperfect. Why do this work now? Because you must. What do you have to say to that? I'm reading this right now. I'm just, you know. Because remember after uh, George Floyd, people, you know, remember they had sit-downs, white women in a dining room talking about what happened and they're saying that the pendulum the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction that we've given up after two years Uh, i'm sorry was that an answer to my question what what do you say to this admonition about the work you must do (laughs) i'm not going to do it thank you why because i'm busy and this is none of their business (laughs) and i don't feel like i'm racist at all that i need to sit down and talk about racism because I don't see it in in mm. my circles and, and what I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Miss um, Jackson and Miss Rao. Are going to have some speaks with me. You can't even start the process of extracting white supremacy until you extract the need to be perfect. The need to be perfect is not just harmful to us. It's harmful to you. Aren't you tired of never being enough? Mm, wow. So much to think about. Yeah, Three. it really, really hits it. Hits Three. it in that uncomfortable spot, doesn't it? But that discomfort is good. Right. I'm supposed Embrace to the discomfort. It's the beginning of your anti-racism work. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro. Answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Extract the white supremacy, ladies, by acknowledging... Your imperfection. Stop trying to be perfect. Well, perfect nails, perfect wedding, yes. Stop trying to be perfect. Stop trying to be the perfect little white supremacist and just listen up to Miss Jackson and Miss Rao when they're talking. And then run, put your pee hat on and run screaming into the streets, into the streets, babbling incoherently. That's how we're going to make this a better society. We're going to extract the white supremacy from the Starbucks in downtown Hinsdale, from the Riverwalk in downtown Naperville.
Wouldn't that be a happy day? Greg in LaGrange. But you'll feel so good about it, Amy. Right. You'll be extracting your white racism. C.S. Lewis nailed it, didn't he, Dan? Didn't he, didn't he nail it? This is out. This is nothing more than a grift. It's a money take. And they want to break people to do it. And they'll do it any way possible. They'll shame you. They'll mask you. They'll rob you through overly taxing you. And they'll make sure that you're always uncomfortable because the criminals will run the street. It is time for people to speak up and face facts. And it's time to push back. And that means at every level, starting at the schools and the libraries where the Jacobines first formed their first ideas. Thank you for your time, guys. Thanks for the call. Remember, we did something similar at church where um, three white people would sit down with um, a black uh, member of the church and talk about racism. And the woman that no, asked, no, to talk. No, 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 no. Listen. Oh, well, yeah. Well, that, we were told to, you know, ask questions. And yeah. the the woman that I was with, the black woman, she said, "I don't. I think I'm treated equally, just like everybody else." I'm like, all right, conversation over. <laughs> hmm. You know what that is? What's that? Uh oh. What product of white supremacy? Oh, but everything is. So silly that we did it in the first place. She's still living under the oppression of daylight saving sign, which is racist, as we know. Oh, that's right. Mark in Plainfield. Yeah, Dan and Amy, the problem isn't too much white supremacy. The problem is there's not enough white weddings in the black community. Four out of five black babies are born out of wedlock, and it's been going on for at least three generations. And that's really the structural problem in the black community. It isn't uh, structural racism. It's it's structural out of wed out of wedlock baby. Just yeah, thanks for the call, Mark. And uh, by the way, um, that uh, is a structural problem in the white and Latino communities exactly. too. It's a structural it's... problem in America, but it's most pronounced in the in uh, the black community. There's no question about it. Not to mention them being buffaloed by the pro aborts. Yeah, no question. The decimation of the family. Tough to work around that, isn't it? But okay, you go ahead with your reparations. Two hundred twenty-three thousand two hundred, double it. Double in California. Californians don't care. Do the same thing in Illinois. We don't care. Go ahead. Where are they going to come up with that money? With five hundred sixty-nine billion billion dollars. What do you mean? Who cares? Where they come up that they borrow it? They get a drop ship from the federal government. They'll they'll increase income taxes on the uh, uh, you know the guilty honky leftists. Who cares? Yeah, come up with them. Go ahead. Do it. And then what? Then what do you got? We'll see how it goes. Like our universal basic income proposals for this identity group and that affinity group in Chicago and Cook County. Go ahead. Get back to me. Let me know how it goes. I know what the problem will be when it doesn't produce the results that people think it will produce to whatever uplift people and make our society more equal and just and so on and so forth. That's not big enough. Okay, make it bigger. Go ahead. Just another government program. It's not like we haven't tried to uh, create entitlements and then scale them over multiple generations and the result has been what? So continue on. Exciting new and varied entitlement programs. Great. 
government plantation. That's the path to freedom and independence, is it? Okay. If that's what you think. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, you heard Mike Scott talking about it in his newscast, uh, the expectation that when the Illinois General Assembly returns after the first of the year for their lame duck session, that they'll move more gun confiscation legislation. Shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. That's what we wanted. That's what we voted for. So that's what we're going to get. Go after, quote unquote, assault weapons, ban um, the uh, possession of Standard magazines holding more than 10 rounds, raise FOID eligibility to 21. I mean, uh, we, we're one of four states that have FOID cards, and that didn't even work as a line of defense against a Highland Park shooter. Firearm restraining orders extend from the current 6 to 12 months. Uh, you see this happening, and, well, obviously with the big guy, Mr. 10%, and the White House continue to prattle on about assault weapon bans. That's... Uh, going nowhere with the Republican takeover of the House. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Colorado, after the Club Q shooting, talk oh, about red flag laws, talk about gun bans as well, whatever restrictions they think they can get away with under current Supreme Court jurisprudence, they're going to move in blue states that are lorded over by politicians who've always wanted to ban guns and still want to ban guns. They'll take what they can get. For more on what is afoot across the nation in blue state America, pleased to be joined by John Lott. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, former senior advisor for research and stats at the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy, author of books including Gun Control Myths and More Guns, Less Crime. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you. Uh, no surprise what you're hearing and seeing from Democrats in Illinois, Colorado, California, New York. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, just a week ago, uh, Biden was talking about banning all semi-automatic guns. Right. I don't know if most people understand that means that about 85 percent of handguns are semi-automatics a similar percentage of rifles are semi-automatics biden claims that there's no kind of possible benefit that people could get from owning a semi-automatic gun but i guess it's not too surprising that biden doesn't think about self-defense but if somebody has to fire uh more than one round from their gun uh to defend themselves uh, they may wish that they had a semi-automatic. I mean, if you want to go and ban all semi-automatic rifles, the alternative is a manually loaded, loaded bolt-action rifle. And if you have to, if you face multiple criminals, or if you fire and miss, or if you fire and wound but don't incapacitate the attacker, you may not have the luxury of time to go and manually reload your gun. I mean, a semi-automatic gun is you pull the trigger, one bullet comes out, it reloads itself, you pull the trigger, one bullet comes out, and so on. But, uh, you know, it's uh, 
these individuals don't think about uh, people being able to go and defend themselves. And you go and you ban these guns. It's going to be the law-abiding good citizens who turn in their guns, not the criminals. I mean, Chicago has seen that before with the uh, with the handgun ban that they had. Um, that didn't stop the criminals from getting. It didn't stop the drug gangs from being able to go and get the guns any more than we've been able to stop the drug gangs from getting the illegal drugs that they sell. Well, what do you think uh, it's going to? You know, yeah. What, what do you think it's going to look like if they have an assault weapons ban in Illinois? Are people going to go door to door collecting people's weapons? No, what I think will happen is is that if you end up using the gun in self-defense or if the police have to go into your home for some other reason, uh, then they'll go and, you know, you'll be charged with these additional crimes. Uh, you know, the, the Biden administration has been putting together uh, a national gun registry. Uh, at the beginning of this year, they had uh, put together about a billion transactions. Uh, that had occurred over decades. It's one of the reasons why they've been trying to work with credit card companies and others to be able to go and uh, have a list of whether or not you purchased a gun, or they've been working with FedEx and UPS to see whether people are sending guns through uh, those services, uh, because the billion transactions that they have are kind of missing some of the most recent ones. And so they're trying to use these other ways of trying to fill in the blanks that they have. But right now, uh, they have a massive computerized database where, in theory, a federal agent can put in your name and they can know whether or not you own a gun. And uh, and they can use that, uh, you know, if they do go door to door to uh, identify it. I mean, that's what happened in California and New York uh, and Connecticut when they've had their uh, assault weapons ban. Uh, they have known who owns the gun. Um, Illinois hasn't had quite the same list, but the federal government will be able to fill in the blanks for them if, if they do decide to go that way. Another front on the uh, topic of law and order is border security. And uh, it uh, turns out that when you don't have border security, if you don't have sensible immigration policy, whether it's in the United States or whether in Western Europe that uh, so many in the United States like to point to to say, why can't we be more like them in terms of the incidence of violent crime? Well, uh, they're becoming more like us because of lax immigration enforcement, as you wrote about recently. I mean, Europe has, has a lower murder rate, but they have a higher violent crime rate than the United States does. Uh, one thing, though, in Europe is they have much better data in terms of the number of uh, immigrants or illegal immigrants that have come into their different countries. I mean, uh, United States, we have a very rough idea of the number of illegal immigrants that have come into the country as a whole, but we don't have the data state by state. In the European Union, for example, they do have that data state by state. Also, they have a lot better data knowing the composition of the prison population. They can tell you how many people in prison are are non-citizens, for example. And you can see whether they're disproportionately represented in, in countries like Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Finland. Uh, you'll find that non-citizens uh, in prison are about two to four times more than their share of the population. You know, Illinois can't tell you the percentage of uh of, of their prison population that are illegal aliens. Um, 
uh, the, virtually all the states in the United States refuse to take keep that type of data. Texas is one place that does have that information, but they're they're alone in terms of modern data. Uh, yeah, and, 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 it, and in Sweden, too, um, that has led to a, a, a course correction policy-wise when it comes to immigration. Right. Well, they're both, both in Sweden and Italy uh, in elections this year, you've had uh, changes in political control of parliament because of, uh, in large part, because of concerns about violent crime. And Germany this year and Hungary have seen 25 percent increases in homicides in just one year. Uh, You've seen across the board about a 9% increase in homicide rates across the European Union. Uh, And the the countries that have seen the biggest increases in non-citizens in their countries have seen the biggest increases in homicide. Each, over the last 11 years, uh, each 1% increase in the number of non-citizens in the country has been associated with about a 3.6% increase in that country's homicide rates. Well, and, and part of this, you know, it's just, this is not any endemic to any particular country or country of origin when it comes to immigrants, but it's a, it's a commentary on the rule of law. So uh, they have illegal immigration in, in the EU just as we have here. I mean, I know by one estimate uh, you, you you reported in your piece that you did with James Varney over at RealClearInvestigations.com, about 10 percent of those who emigrated to EU countries over the last decade did so illegally. So he, here again, we go with, you know, people that want to go through a process to enter to immigrate to another country legally for the purposes of bettering their lives or family unification or whatever. That's one thing. And, it, you know, it'd be interesting to really separate out those two cohorts uh, uh, to to underscore the point that, you know, people that don't want to follow law to enter a country probably more likely to not want to follow other laws when they get into the country. Yeah, there was some data that Arizona had some years ago, which indicated that uh, people who came legally into the United States had very low crime rate, lower than the average Arizonan. But mm-hmm. people who came in illegally uh, would have much, much higher violent crime rates in general. They had, you know, about a 75 percent higher rate of m- murder, uh, had a couple hundred percent higher rate of rapes. So there was a huge difference between those who came in legally and those who came in illegally. And it seems like you have a similar pattern in the countries in Europe that collect that type of data. He is John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, former senior advisor for research and stats at the DOJ's Office of Legal Policy, author of books including Gun Control Myths and More Crime, More Guns, Less Crime, that is. John Lott, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for being there. Take care. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, we'll see how good a job the D.C. press corps does ignoring this whistleblower. It's difficult to ignore Elon Musk, probably easier to ignore Dr. Andrew Huff. He's a former vice president of EcoHealth Alliance who has a new book out called The Truth About Wuhan, in which he says... 
The pandemic was the result of the U.S. government's funding of dangerous genetic engineering of coronaviruses in China. Quote, EcoHealth Alliance and foreign laboratories did not have the adequate control measures in place for ensuring proper biosafety, biosecurity, and risk management, ultimately resulting in the lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He suggests that this is the worst intelligence failure since 9-11, and greedy scientists are responsible for the deaths of millions. Wow. Three one two oh yeah, three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. What about Dr. Fauci? I mean he said that's not possible. Remember? Uh, he said he said it was more likely than not, uh, natural yeah. naturally occurring, but he keeps an open mind. Of course he does. Of course he does. But it was uh Dr. Fauci, who enlisted Peter Daszak from EcoHealth Alliance to run interference on the notion that it could have come from the Wuhan Virology Lab, wasn't it? Was yes, it, leaked, it was. leaked by accident or leaked on purpose? The Let's lab. get to the source before we understand whether it was, you know, we, we ascribe that the, the Chinese government did this on purpose. Uh as Wall Street Journal opined just last month, EcoHealth Alliance hasn't been forthcoming about how it used National Institutes of Health grants for coronavirus research in China. Yet Anthony Fauci, on his way to retirement this year, is rewarding EcoHealth Alliance by giving it more money for coronavirus research. <laughs> the NIH last month awarded EcoHealth Alliance $653,000 grant to analyze the potential for future bat coronavirus emergence in Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam. Remarkable. Now, Peter Daszak, he's the president of EcoHealth Alliance, as I mentioned. He's the one, if you remember, and there's emails that memorialize the interaction between Fauci and Daszak, tried to shut down the debate. He uh, coordinated a letter from scientists that was published in The Lancet condemning the lab leak hypothesis as a conspiracy theory. And then Fauci sort of started massaging his position publicly to hedge his bets and to look like he had no dog in that fight, even though he clearly did when he sicked Peter Daszak on those who suggested that the the possible origination of the virus was a lab leak in Wuhan. He writes now, does Dr. Andrew Huff, this Army veteran, uh, who worked at EcoHealth Alliance from 2014 to 2016, served as vice president in 2015, and apparently worked on the classified side of the research program as a U.S. government scientist. He says that EcoHealth Alliance taught the Wuhan lab the best existing methods to engineer bat coronaviruses to attack other species. He claims China knew from day one that this was a genetically engineered agent. The U.S. government is to blame for the transfer of dangerous biotechnology to the Chinese. I was terrified by what, what I saw. We were just handing them bioweapon technology. Nobody should be, more from Dr. Huff, nobody should be surprised, he's an epidemiologist by the way, nobody should be surprised that the Chinese lied about the outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 and then went to extraordinary lengths to make it appear as if the disease naturally emerged. The shocking part of all this is how the United States government lied to all of us. 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I mean, you know, again, this is not definitive. This is one man's viewpoint based on being up close and personal, yeah, it sounds like. He had a front like. row seat to it. Yeah. So I hold this, you know, to be biblical, that this to be true. I mean, I remember, and then the mainstream media, they even had me fooled for a while. Remember, Dan, you set me straight. You know, when they had Richard Angle there from NBC News showing bats and saying, oh, no, this came from a bat at this wet market here. and It was all part of the cover-up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this makes me want Dr. Fauci to pay. I know he's retiring at the right time, but give me a break. He should go well, to jail for what he did. Well, it certainly would be worthwhile to, uh, you know, we're talking about um, committee hearings into Biden, Inc., and uh, certainly would be worthwhile to have committee hearings in the House that bring not just Fauci back to go through this, including the grant funding, the EcoHealth Alliance on his way out the door. I mean, just, you know, to, you want to talk about no accountability. You right. just keep getting rewarded. Well, why are you getting rewarded? Because you're a henchman for those who control the purse strings. That's the most important thing It's not being honorable, not telling the truth. Uh, it is to be a henchman for the people that, uh, contr- you know, that that hold the purse strings. And this is what Dr. Huff is essentially suggesting, is that people subordinated their scientific good judgment for grant funding. And, you know, look, this is a real problem. You think scientists are immune from pecuniary interests, and they're not. So in addition to getting Fauci before a congressional committee again on this and other topics, I'd like to get Dr. Andrew Huff before a committee testify publicly and see how well he stands up under examination as well. Jordan in Antioch, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. My response to that 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 uh, that claim that, that everything the guy's saying is like I told the screeners like you're the 15 year old that you tell them like Santa Claus isn't real right you're like duh but how many people are going to listen to this and I guess I'm what's your opinion on this Dan do you think these people are coming out now I mean on both sides the Hunter Biden thing uh, Wuhan COVID are they coming out because they maybe they feel like they have cover. In, uh, after the elections in the House with the with the investigation, I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Jordan. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, you know, it's some cover with uh, Republicans in charge of the House. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, uh, maybe uh, you feel like we're th- on the other side of the pandemic, so this isn't a, as much of a distraction, and there should be a reckoning in terms of what we don't know, or maybe. More to the point, what we're pretending not to know. Maybe there's a concern about ongoing worst practices, the ongoing relationship between financial relationship between the U.S. government through NIH grants and the Chinese government. What else we're doing that could uh, produce a repeat of what happened or perhaps something worse? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you have to ask the question, too. Oh, oh, OK, Dr. Huff, you you wrote a book. It's time for you to cash in, make a little bit of money. You want the notoriety and this is an opportunity to make money. I mean, you know, you, you, you have to address everybody's motives as well as their work product, including the whistleblower. Um, may, you know, maybe maybe seeing uh, Eco Health Alliance get another grant, despite what he alleges Peter Daszak and EcoHealth Alliance were a part of, 
Maybe that was the impetus, although I doubt he wrote the book in a month, so this has probably been in the works for a while. Is there a way to stop the grant? Sure, you can claw it back. You can claw it back if the you believe that the uh, grantee. I mean, you know, I, the, the particulars of the the contractual relationship as a as a uh, grantee. But I mean, if you believe that uh, the grantee made any material misrepresentations, both in this application or previous work product, and based on what Peter Daszak did with running interference on the Wuhan Virology Lab leak theory, that alone could be caused to not just uh, rescind the grant, but disqualify them as a government vendor permanently, I would argue. We'll see. And, you know, this stuff, uh, uh, you know, we, we knew it. And, yeah, I mean, you know, we have we have things that we believe because they make sense. And you have suspicions because there's a lot to be suspicious about. I get it, but it's important when people come forward that have first-person knowledge and expertise in the area to say things that we believe to be, we believe to be true, or more likely than not, were true. And yeah, some people aren't going to listen, and yeah, it's going to be suppressed, and the New York Times isn't going to cover it. But you know, it's it's every single day you got to throw, you got to put in the fight, and make a, maybe a little bit of progress. You think uh, something should be. Uh, known completely and it's barely known but it takes time it takes time look at the hunter biden story and the trajectory of that over the last two years you're thinking about where we were two weeks before the election versus where we are today same thing here and by the way this is against the backdrop of these same covidian politicians who the people in their infinite wisdom did not hold to account for the lockdowns of businesses and schools the destruction of uh, the economy, the retardation of children's economic, social, emotional growth, uh, not held accountable. And so what are they doing? I mean, a story out of L.A. County that they're on the cusp of reinstituting a mask mandate. Right. So it matters to fight these fights. Otherwise, they will come back and impose the same policies. And they're happy if you don't want to fight. You don't want to push back. You don't throw up your hands and say nobody's paying attention. Nobody was held accountable. And so there's nothing we can do. Okay, well, they'll take advantage of that. They're not proud. I mean, the lies that they told us. You know how you get your flashbacks on your phone? This is from a year ago. That COVID lives four hours on copper surfaces, 24 hours on cardboard, and two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. That's from ABC News a a year ago today. Um, There's not one case in the world of surface-to-person transmission of COVID. Not one. And that's why people are idiots and wipe down their, you know, boxes that they got from the store, put them in their garage for a day to kill any germs. Well, and thinking about... lie after lie. And thinking about uh, the um, misinformation that's been put out there and the debates that were squelched by on platforms like Twitter, well, now that's changed. Yep. Because uh, the ownership change of Twitter and the policy changes that are following. So, you know, you... It's a slog. It's rarely, rarely an easy victory, particularly when you have an opponent that's so so well resourced. And I'm talking about these uh, tax eating Covidian statists. Lee and Hammond, John Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey guys, you, you know I remember Watergate and the big deal that was made out of that. It was such a scandal. 
And the thing I get out of all these these scandals, it's like a scandal of the week anymore. And yet, no, there's no recourse. Nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes. The one thing I hear from people all the time is depression. They're they're to the point now to where, what do you do? I mean, it's like uh, it, all of this stuff goes on and on and on. And it, and there's our government is so corrupt. We have no recourse in any of this. It, it's just it's ignored. It's blown up, but not only by the media, but by the Republicans. It it just I you know it's 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 depressing. It's sad. And well, I, yeah. Doing? Thanks for the call, Lee. I mean, you you know you can act where you have influence, and and again, uh, Republicans take control of the House, so now there's going to be hearings that wouldn't have otherwise happened. There's going to be investigations that w- would have otherwise not occurred. There's going to be more attention to topics like Biden Inc. and COVID response policy than would have otherwise occurred. So, yeah, it's not as much and as fast as you want, but like I said, it's a slog. It's a slog. Keep swinging. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.